Welcome to Pineland Underground, the official podcast of the U.S. Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School. Here we explore critical themes across the realm of Army Special Operations. This is Pineland Underground. All right, so welcome back to Pineland Underground. So far, I have failed in my mission to get Major Bobby Tuttle fired. I'm still here. They're still letting me play. So we got to try a little harder. Today we have retired Command Sergeant Major and former Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, John Wayne Troxel, with us. He served in the military for 38 years and is a Command Sergeant Major for 20 years. He served as the highest enlisted person in the military from 2015 to 2019. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Chuck. It's uh, an honor to be here. And Bobby, thanks uh, for having me. Hanging out with a couple of Green Berets always does my heart proud, so. No, we're definitely pleased to have you. I know you were talking to the Non-Commissioned Officer Academy earlier today. And again, your insights serving at the highest levels of our military are really, really important for us to, to understand and really capture. That's why we're doing this podcast. And appreciate your time for being I'm here. I'm fired up. I'm ready to get after it. Yeah, so thanks for doing that. Thanks for doing that, that seminar with James Kerr, yeah. you know, author of Legacy, which is one of the, you know, I personally find that book to be one of the most, I don't know if inspirational is the term, but it's one of those books I always revert back to. And, and it's just, I don't know, it always motivates me. Yeah, I'm with you. We have a number of field manuals that we go back to, to to get better at our craft. But in terms of getting better at the art of leadership, there's no better field manual than the book Legacy by uh, James Kerr. And I, I'm the same way. I use it all the time. I carry it with me all the time. It's in my assault pack right now. We had that as uh, almost mandatory reading at the battalion level for incoming Special Forces company commanders at First Special Forces Group. Wow. And again, that just the way he, he breaks down being part of a team, understanding mm-hmm. culture, the cycle of, yep, you're going to lose people, but also getting back to that extremely high level when, when there's turnover. And they're just understanding that, you know, at the end of the day as a leader, yep, you're still sweeping the shed. Yeah. You know, you're, you're still taking the trash out and being that guy who's worked his way up to the top. But you know what it's like to be a guy at the middle and the bottom as well. Extremely Absolutely. important lessons. Yeah. All right. So this first topic I want to go into. So you you retired and you started this this company called eTool Nation, right? Mm-hmm. It's your apparel and gear line, but all your profits go to supporting veterans. All profits go to supporting veterans. Yep. You also sponsor a couple of athletes with eTool Nation, right? I do. And then uh, and those are veteran athletes. Veteran obviously. athletes only. And then everything else goes towards foundations that are directly tied tied to any kind of veteran. Sure. Right? Any any foundation that supports veterans, Gold Star families, like one foundation that I continue to donate to supports, you know, Gold Star children. Mm-hmm. So if it's veteran or family oriented, military, then uh, I try to donate. Okay. But yeah. What I want you to talk about is <laughs> the uh, the story behind why it's called Etool Nation because it's almost like a I don't know it's I wouldn't say it's like a middle finger but it's maybe I'll let you go into the story I know it I find it entertaining yeah it, if, if if I could real quick for our listeners that may not know what an Etool is or an man. entrenching tool like what, not know g- what that is? give give me a quick synopsis of what the Etool is it's in a military shovel that. It, traditional use is used for digging, whether it's fighting positions, latrines, or whatever it is. But it can be used as a non-standard weapon to neutralize the enemy. And so for years and years and years, in Desert Storm, when I served there, this e-tool was looked at as just something that you dig with. But the more as the SEAC that I got around folks like you all uh, in the special operations community, you know, I, I was 
visiting Iraq, I'm sorry, Syria, and I had just watched the movie Platoon where Tom Berenger in that last firefight, you know, didn't have a weapon and everything. He grabbed that E-tool and he's beating that Viet Cong guy to death when Charlie Sheen comes over and that's when Charlie Sheen, you know, ends up whacking him and everything. But one of the sergeant majors in the unit there and I kept talking about this E-tool as a weapon. So I just said on the roof of a building in Raqqa, Syria, I wanted to make sure that from Washington, D.C. perspective, that we were sending a message to the troops that was inspirational in terms of we hadn't forgotten about the hard work folks like you all were doing in places like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Libya, Somalia, Niger, Colombia, or the Korean Peninsula, wherever it was at. So I was on the roof there, and I just said, you know, these assholes, ISIS, they have two options, surrender or die. If they surrender, you know, we, are, we will treat them humanely. We'll safeguard them to their detainee holding facility cell, give them, you know, three meals, a place to sleep, and due process. But let there be no doubt, if they don't surrender, then we're going to kill them with extreme prejudice, whether that's dropping bombs on them, training a partner force to kill them, shooting them in the face ourselves, or if need be, beating them to death with our entrenching tools. And it fit a narrative that the Secretary of Defense at the time, Jim Mattis, had, which was, we're not going to just defeat the enemies of the United States. We're going to annihilate them. Mm. We are going to eradicate any threat to our freedom, our homeland, and our way of life. And so when I would travel with Secretary Mattis, and he would talk about the national defense strategy, and then he would talk about this annihilation and everything, I felt that I needed to send a message like, I think, is a responsibility of any leader— you have to, your messages have to inspire troops. And in some cases, they have to intimidate the enemy. And so certainly Mattis's message was doing that. So I felt I had to, in order to be the good senior enlisted advisor to the chairman and SECDEF I was, I had to compliment that. So I came up with this and Mattis told me to keep saying it wherever I went. And it was never an issue until a reporter from uh, the Washington Post heard me say it. And he took offense to it and said that I was advocating for troops to go out and commit war crimes. And I had to explain to him that we issue entrenching tools to soldiers, Marines, and battlefield airmen for multi-use. And one of them is as a non-standard weapon to neutralize threats. So he said, well, I'm going to go public with this. And I initially said, hey, knock yourself out. But then I thought about it and I thought, oh, shit, what happens now if all of a sudden you know, Washington Post starts putting this out. What is this going to mean? So I called up my trusty public affairs guy, you know, my Denfos trained killer, <laughs> uh, Master Sergeant retired now, Rob Couture. And I said, Rob, he was back in Washington, D.C. And I said, hey, you know, this reporter said it's going, he's going to go public with this. And he said, well, let's beat him to the punch. He said, send me a picture of you holding an e-tool, because I was carrying an e-tool okay. when I would get up in front of the troops now. And, and I was trying to be emotive and give this, you know, impassioned speech about how we were going to take the fight to the enemy. Inspiring and, the troops, absolutely. Absolutely. And it blew the roof off the hangar in Afghanistan, damn near, when, the, when I did it, when that reporter took uh, offense to it. So he took that picture, he took my quote, and he put it on a social media post on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, on all social media, you said the reporter kind of waddled up to you, right, and kind of accused. Yeah, you he was. A, he was war a crimes. Yeah, he's he waddled up. He was he was five by five. You know, he was a little short, <laughs> stout guy. He had crew serve cameras. You know, going bald, <laughs> but his hair was sticking up on his head, and so clearly he's a guy that didn't understand living the warrior ethos. And so when we posted that, 
you know, we thought it was going to be to, you know, just to answer or to retort what he was going to say and everything. What I didn't realize and what my public affairs, it went viral. I mean, it went all over the world. All the major news agencies picked it up. The Fox 5 did a special on it. The Russian, or excuse me, the French and German media picked it up. And all of a sudden I was getting messages from all over the world from U.S. and, you know, NATO partners and everything, leaders saying, thank you for sending that message. We needed to hear this. The third special forces group commander at the time sent me an email and said, thank you. You know, here I am over here in Africa with my troops and everything, and we needed a message out of Washington, D.C., and you sent it. Thank you, you know. But it also, there were people in Washington, D.C. that took offense to it. And some people thought that I shouldn't be speaking like that as a senior enlisted guy. So I had to deal with some backlash on it and everything, and uh, that led to some other things and some professional jealousy, and I ended up getting suspended. You know, for six months, I sat in a a penalty box, but all it did was elevate this entrenching tool thing. And uh, so when I got reinstated and I went back to work, I mean, throughout this whole time, I was signing entrenching tools left and right. People were like autographing them. I was autographing them. And I'm talking people that don't even have them, like the Navy and the Coast Guard. You know, they people were bringing them to me or sending them to me. And today people send them to me all the time and I sign them. And well, you said you're up to like 2,000 and something. 2,000. Right? As of today, that NCO I signed, 2,141 I've signed. There's a shortage of entrenching <laughs> tools uh, across all CIFs, you know, central interesting <laughs> facilities across across the military right now. Well, you know, the, statement of charges going <laughs> the maker of the uh, entrenching tool, which is the lighthouse for the blind, you know, four, four blind people in Spokane, Washington, make all the entrenching tools for the Army and the Marine Corps. Had no idea. Yeah, and so... They told me that after I said that, that non-military people were buying entrenching tools left and right. So Propping the business. So back to this theme of a leader inspiring the troops and intimidating the enemy. And oh, by the way, ISIS on their French propaganda webpage started talking smack to me. So consulting oh, yeah. my Denfos trained killer, my PAO, he said, let's talk smack back to him. And so, you know, we had this, you know, dialect. And pretty soon I started getting death threats on... Uh, Twitter and things from folks that, you know, were kind of ISIS sympathizers and everything. So, but in the end, it was all goodness that came out of this. And so now, forever, SEAC number three, John Wayne Troxell, is tied to this entrenching tool. So, yeah. So I, I said, I need to leverage this. And so I built this foundation, eTool Nation. And now I sell apparel and I sell entrenching tools that I autograph and everything. And every cent that I bring in from that, I either support my veteran athletes or I give to nonprofits uh, that take care of veterans and families. So that's kind of the story. I, I wanted to chime in real quick. So we're recording a podcast right now. This is you know, Pineland Underground. This is, the, this is the official podcast of the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School. You two gentlemen last night recorded a podcast on Etool Nation. What is your message after living through that experience as the SEAC, as a senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's that's an incredibly high position in our yeah. military. But you've you've now kind of taken that narrative and continued to really project it and illuminated the, the message. But what would you say that message is from you out to our American people? So what what I think when when we retire in the military, there's two types of military retirees. 
there's enablers and there's agitators. And there's people that when they, the agitators are the ones that get out of the military or retire. And when they were in, everything was, you know, great. You know, during their service, they were squared away. The minute they got out, you know, the free world is collapsing because they're no longer in uniform. And folks like you that are still in uniform are screwing it up and everything. I wanted to be an enabler. How do, can I continue to leverage who I was and who I am now and kind of the stuff I did? And how can I continue to inspire? How can I continue to give back? How can I continue to help the current force? So I chose to be an enabler. And that's what this is all about. You know, I'm a retired guy. I am a veteran and I am not the SEAC anymore. But I still think post-military life, if you love your country and you love your military, you got to continue to give back any way you can. And the way I give back is trying to provide inspiration to troops that are looking for it. I'm not trying to replace anybody in uniform, certainly not the current SEAC or anybody else, but I'm trying to be a retiree that's giving back. And that's my message. And my message to the American people as I do these other things outside the military is to let them know how good the United States military is mm. and what service in our military does to build better citizens in our nation. So all of that is what I'm designed to get to. <laughs> when you're retired, sometimes people think that you should just go away and disappear and not do anything and not try to be an enabler or something like that. I think sometimes they like you better if you're pissing and moaning about Popeye's charging more on post than off post for chow or something, you know, <laughs> instead of saying things that are inspirational and the troops want you to come and talk to them about and everything. I think there's still that level of professional jealousy that exists in the ranks, but I don't let that bother me. I give that an extinction response. I do nothing. And I just continue to do what I'm doing because it's having an impact. And the bottom line, the phone hasn't stopped ringing. Every time when Chuck said, I want you to come out, I said, I'm coming out. Ain't going to cost you a dime. Ain't going to cost the NCO Academy a dime. I do it because I still love my country and I still love the military. And if I can come and do something with Chuck's instructors here that gives them just a little bit more oomph to go out and be better NCOs and everything, then it's well worth the cost to get me out here and everything. Sure. It's continuing to inspire mm-hmm. soldiers. Absolutely. At the end of the day, we're warriors. Yeah. That's what we pride ourselves on. That's why we volunteered to join this military and serve amongst other warriors Mm -hmm. and other giants. I think they really appreciated what you were talking about today about the importance of the PT belt and how it's really increased our lethality. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you were there, but I I think you left. I was there. When he was talking about he had 15 people that got hit by cars and bogged. 2011 and 12 in Afghanistan, we had 15 soldiers get run over and killed by, you know, all kinds of vehicles. States, every one of them. Stateside or downrange or combination? Say again? Stateside or No, downrange. Down range, in the country yeah. of Afghanistan. And uh, every one of them was wearing a PT belt. So my point was, it's not the reflective belt that is that we have to focus on. It's about being executing prudent risk and limited visibility and making good, sound, and timely decisions on how you do things in limited visibility. If you put a reflective belt on, it's not a substitute for good judgment. (laughs) Hang on the middle of the road. (laughs) Yeah. Because then, you know, when the the safety center would say, was this person wearing a reflective belt? Yes, they were. Okay, so the narrative of a reflective belt prevents injuries went out the window. And don't get me wrong. 
I think, you know, he and I have been running the last two days with headlamps and stuff. So the last thing I want to do is become a hood ornament, you know, on a car in Southern Pines, North Carolina, you know. I think sometimes we get focused on those tangible things like that instead of the intangibles that come with the art of influence and leadership that get people to make better decisions. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> you had to bring up the PT belt. I love PT belt. Yeah. As long as we're up to date on our cybersecurity awareness, we're yeah. good. No, we'll, we'll talk about that later. About you know, I know you've got some opinions on how the Russians have been performing in, in Ukraine, and yeah, you, know, you can definitely tell that none of them have been doing their online training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all delinquent, <laughs> and their med pros is red. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know, Bobby. You want to hit off this next one? Yeah. So I wanted to ask. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy and after seeing, again, and experiencing that highest level within the Department of Defense, defense versus deterrence? Talk to me a little bit about that. I just think words matter and what our messaging matters. And I get concerned when I hear things that say we are deploying for defensive reasons only because I think that sends a message to our adversary or the enemy that, okay, I have several lines that I can cross and nothing's going to happen. There's ultimately a red line that we, we, the U.S. says, if you cross this red line, that we are going to take action. But if you say we are here to deter and we are a deterrent, you know, by the, the definition, Webster's definition, defense means you're going to repel an attack. Deterrent means you are going to coerce the enemy not to attack. And what I love today is that one of your NCOs that was sitting in the front rank echoed that. And that's when I say, you know, every time somebody says something that is exactly what I'm thinking in my mind, I say, next SEAC right there, or the next Sergeant Major of the Army right there. And he said it exactly that. But I think, if, so if we say um, we're deploying for defensive reasons only, what does that say to the troops, you know, that, well, we're not expecting combat. But if we say something like this to a potential threat, and this is Troxel's words, we are deploying to deter, in this case, Russian aggression. And let there be no doubt, none of us wants war, but let there be no doubt that if this deterrence fails and Russia conducts an attack on the U.S. or any of our NATO allies, and Article 5 is invoked, they will face the full brunt of the U.S. military and our NATO allies to defeat this aggression. I think that message goes a long way a lot longer in terms of inspiring the troops to know that we're deploying over here and we're not going to war, but we have to be prepared for war. But if you say we're going for defensive reasons only, I think it sends a wrong message. And that's just my opinion. And I, so I, I think deterrence is a stronger word. And if we're talking about inspiring the troops and intimidating the enemy, and again, you know, somebody like Putin may never be intimidated, you know, I think deterrence goes a lot further than defense. In the previous words that you mentioned, you know, is it defeat or, you know, what are the, the ultimate outcomes of annihilate well, or destroy the threat? But the common thing that has be, we, we have seen kicked around is deploy for purpose. And that's yeah. one of Chuck's favorites. <clears throat> no, it's something I hate. It's kind of like task organized for purpose. It's, yeah. it's just redundant. Kind of like uh, presence patrol. Yeah, in my opinion, that translates to we're going we're gonna to either walk around or drive around until we get blown up. Yeah, and then we're going to go back and eat chow. We say a <laughs> lot of weird stuff that makes no sense. <laughs> hey, Bob, you know, he knows it gets on my nerves, and I vent to him all the time about every time I hear somebody say something that it's meaningless or just redundant. It, yeah. Uh, it triggers me. Anyway, let's, let's talk about 
Ukraine with that. I mean, because we're basically yeah. talking about it anyway. You're you know you're in direct communication with your old counterpart over there, their SIAC and, and others, and you get updates every day. And you do post them on social media, but you know you shared with me the other morning a longer update that was way more in depth, and it was pretty cool. So let's talk about that. What are your thoughts on what's going on over there? Yeah. So first of all, the updates I post, I've caught some flack for that because people accused me of violating operation security. And I had to, these same people that were telling me that I was violating OPSEC did not know what the true definition of operation security is in terms of what is essential elements of friendly information, what are critical information lists, and the normal things that we use to determine what operation security is. And then the screenshots that I was posting of my conversations with the Ukrainian SEAC, you know, some genius up there thought that, you know, that could be somehow geolocated back to his position. I said, a screenshot with an, a disabled GPS on an iPhone has no metadata on it uh, or anything like that. So it can't be, you know, geolocated back to anybody. The bottom line, the people that were criticizing me had no idea what operation security was. You know, and we're at the point in our world that if you say, I'm going to Ukraine, shh, um, operation security, even though we post deployments for general purpose units in the Army Times, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah. it's publicized. It's it publicized. Publicized. Yeah. And so so anyways, I felt because of this invasion and the hard fighting that the Ukrainian and it's, it's not just the Ukrainian SEAC. I have three other friends over there. Two of them are former sergeant majors in the Ukrainian military, and I've done some NATO things with them as well. And so they've taken up arms to defend their country. So I post these updates because I want to tell their story. And my Ukrainian brother, the Ukrainian SEAC, even though I'm not on active duty, you know, he and I built a relationship that is transformational and it's built on a brotherhood. It's not transactional. And that relationship didn't end when I retired and he's still serving. We are still brothers, and we address each other like that. I want to tell their story because there may come a, a time real soon as the Russians continue to close on Kiev and as they continue to devastate Kharkiv and these Mariupol and Odessa and these other places, there may be a time that they can't tell their story because they've been killed in action defending their country. So I'm going to tell my brother's story, and and I'm going to continue to tell it regardless of how this outcome is. So... What I see in Ukraine right now is I see a nation that is rallied behind a just a dynamic, fearless leader in Zelensky, their president. He has set the bar so high for being a leader of a nation. You know, he had an opportunity to flee the country. He could have done a Ghani like Ghani did out of Afghanistan. Yep. He chose to stay. Flew away. Yeah, yeah. He could have he could have grabbed his family and money and he but he said no. In his quote, when we talk about being inspirational and intimidating the enemy, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. Mm. And so I think what's going on, you know, to answer your question, I think the Russians, as they did their intelligence preparation of the battlefield and commander's preparation of the battlefield and all this stuff, I think they thought that they were going to go in and they were going to have to fight 200,000 Ukrainian troops. And what they got was 40 million Ukrainians standing up to them. And so this anti-armor defense that they thought they were going to have to fight their way through from the north, especially into Kiev, has now turned into every window, every street of every village that they go in. There's a Ukrainian citizen or soldier 
with an AK-47, an RPG, or there's armor vehicles, there's Molotov cocktails, there's improvised explosive devices. All of these things, this asymmetry that they've created, this nation has created on the battlefield, has confused the shit out of the Russians. And then the performance at the tactical level of the Russians shows why professional militaries have professional non-commissioned officer corps. Mm -hmm. Because commanders can't be everywhere. Platoon leaders, officers can't be everywhere. And so they have to project their vision, their priorities, and their focus through their subordinates, their non-commissioned officers. And in our military, we do it better than anybody in the world. No one even comes close. We got great partners and allies that are trying to do the same thing, but no one does it better than us. The Russians with conscripts on the ground and that lack of NCOs that can make sound and timely decision based off officer's intent and apply agile adaptive thinking is non-existent. So every time the Russians have been hit by something, whether it's an anti-armor ambush or whether it's a blocking obstacle or just the basic discipline of their force where they think it's okay to park in a cornfield and get off and go eat chow and all of a sudden a farmer comes along in his John Deere tractor and takes off with their MTLB or their BRDM or their T-72 or whatever. Or now you get off your BRDM to do a combat dismount of patrol, but you don't leave anybody on there for security and some teenage Ukrainian girls go on that vehicle and start doing TikTok videos of dancing and then they get in and take off driving the damn thing. How they figured out, and, and that's that there with the generational thing of TikTok, that's a snapshot of the resiliency of this Ukrainian nation and their citizens. Because teenage Ukrainian girls could get into a Russian BRDM and they could figure out how to crank it up and they could figure it out how to put it in gear and how to drive off with it, okay? And that, that the audacity of non-combatants like these Ukrainian farmers, and God bless John Deere because, uh, you know, nothing runs like a deer, you know, and it's American and everything, that they can hook up to these main battle tanks or these armored personnel carriers or these reconnaissance vehicles and they could just take off with it. It, it is just unbelievable, the resiliency of the Ukrainian people in putting up this fight. And I think the Russians, I think they, they have let their ground force atrophy in terms of their training, their combined arms maneuver, their use of joint fires, their use of integrating ISR, their rearm, refuel, resupply on the move, their battle damage assessment repair on the move. All of that stuff has so atrophy. Pretty much any one of the warfighter functions. You any one of the warfighter functions, they absolutely <laughs> suck at. And then the worst thing they suck at is in the people domain yeah. where they don't have mid-level management, those non-commissioned officers. And I think we all know that when you're in vehicles in a convoy and you've done combined arms maneuver, you have trust, you have built synergy, you've rehearsed your battle drills, you've rehearsed the use of your weapons and everything, you're comfortable spreading out a little bit. You're comfortable getting into a combat formation like a V or something like that or a wedge or something. When you don't have that confidence, you don't have that level of decentralization and empowerment. You get in a line of ducks, everybody's gun tube faces in the front, and you bunch up. And guess what? One Ukrainian tank 150 meters away that shoots a dang Russian T-72 and blows the turret off it, and now all of a sudden, that stopped that entire convoy. And in some cases, Russian soldiers left their combat vehicle and took off running. What, what do we There was do? no maneuver, no reaction to contact. They just froze, and that is for all the reasons that I just said. 
And when, when you want safety in numbers because you don't know how to navigate, you don't have battle drills, you don't know how to react to contact and everything, you want to bunch up and be close together. And whether it's been the use of artillery, the use of these ambushes, or the use of drones, the Ukrainians are spanking their asses in a lot of areas, in a lot of places. And that's why it's taken the Russians so long to get to where they're going, to their, their assault objectives. And you mentioned there's four, you know, 40, they were not expecting to encounter 40 million Ukrainians. I think mm-hmm. you summed it up nicely. And that's that's the will of the Ukrainian people right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. And we're seeing that. And I, I would like the contrast is, you know, what is the, the will of the Russian conscript army who are now encroaching into Ukraine? Again, we, it, we're, so we're recording this on the 16th of March. So we'll, we'll see how things play out. But I think those are all extremely important. And that that contrast between what we're seeing with the professional army of Russia vice the all-volunteer professional army of the United States, that contrast, I think, is, is pretty, uh, pretty solid. And, uh, and, Bobby, you mentioned something. You know, the longer this goes on, the more the fighter management in terms of, you know, the appropriate rest, the appropriate refit, and all these things is going to be critical. And think of this. There's 200,000 Russian troops. That's 55% of their ground force. Their entire ground force is in Ukraine right now. So as this war goes on, and how do you how do you get replacements? Obviously, the, you know, they're, they're the Belarusians they're trying to get, the Chechnyans, they're bringing Syrian fighters in and everything. But all the other things that they're trying to do in Northern Africa, in places like Libya and Egypt and uh, in Syria and places like this, what does that mean? You know, at, at a certain point, they're going to get to a tipping point that they have just eroded their combat effectiveness. If it isn't eroded already, because, uh, you know, a Russian conscript that has no one to provide him purpose, motivation and direction like an NCO and, and all he's doing is taking orders from an officer and executing him, doesn't know why he's there, doesn't understand everything. At a certain point, that's going to wear on that entire force. And that is what the Ukrainians are exploiting. And I love the way they're doing it. You mentioned in a discussion earlier today, for our listeners, I'm picturing, you know, it's like Game of Thrones. You've got all the, the you know, the kings and the generals kind of um, over a table, and you have this giant map, and you're seeing all these icons being moved or maneuvered on the battle space. But you had a really nice story or vignette that you mentioned of your time in the tank uh, at the Pentagon where you had a set of our generals moving and maneuvering things on the battle space. And as the senior enlisted advisor to the chairman, you know, what, what was kind of your comment? About- yeah, it wasn't in the tank. It was in the joint staff conference room. And we were talking about maneuvering. You know, I, I won't talk about the area or anything or who the people were. And I could tell what the expectation we were having in terms of moving these icons and what we were expecting the force to do. We weren't thinking about the things associated under that icon, the people, the equipment, the ammunition, the resources. We weren't thinking at that level, especially with the people. So finally, I just said, hey, look, look underneath that icon. There's people under there, and they will need rest. They will need refit. They will need hot meals, or otherwise we are going to run them into the ground. Mm -hmm. I think as my role there and, and with any senior enlisted leader is, you know, you're not there to, you know, make the bosses feel good about themselves. You're there to give them the harsh realities in some cases, if that is what it is, or you're giving them best advice based off your experience and uh, 
at the tactical and operational level. And that's what I was trying to do then, is make sure they understood that, yeah, we can do all this stuff here, but it's going to come at a cost. And it's going to come at a cost of running our people into the ground. And I think that's the key thing that we have to do as a senior enlisted leader. Let's talk about that. So we, okay. In our runs the past few days, we've, we've had some discussions about <laughs> the role of the E-9, right? Let's get your take on that. The E-9 has two main responsibilities. He delivers the pulse of the force to the commander. He gives best advice to the commander with that pulse of the force in terms of how we should go about doing operations or how we should take care of people. But he also delivers the wide of the troops. So that, that suggests that battlefield circulation is what the E-9 does. And it has to get out and see the troops and everything, wherever they're at. And I don't care if you're a battalion-level guy or you're the SEAC. you got to get out and get it after your battle space. Now, unfortunately for me, my battle space was the globe. So I, had to, I spent 270 days on the road going to visit troops, delivering the why, what our national defense and national military strategy was suggesting we needed to do, and gaining the pulse from them on how they were getting after the missions that we were telling them about or expecting them to do. So I think the E-9 has to be the honest broker on any, and has to make sometimes some unpopular decisions. You know, like this one here, when commanders are focusing on mission execution and they're not focused on as much, and not to suggest that commanders or or senior officers were forgetting about the welfare of the troops, it just wasn't at the forefront of their mind. And based on our experience coming through the ranks and making it to an E-9, I think our job is to make sure that we're looking out for the preparedness, the wellness, and the lethality of the troops. And that includes sometimes going and telling the boss, hey, you're running these guys in the ground. You know, when I look at some major bad events that have happened in our military, I think we remember the Black Hearts book from 2006 in uh, Iraq where the fighter management uh, was all jacked up in this infantry battalion and troops were spending more time on duty than off duty. And all of a sudden the culture became, well, we're in combat if you only get two hours sleep a night, that's all. That's the way it is and everything. But also the lack of overhead given to checkpoints, given to squads and everything. And pretty soon, you know, if you read people that read the book or associated with it, understand that at some point this squad decides that they're going to do other things than be, you know, American soldiers that are there to support the Iraqi people, defend against terrorists and everything. And they decide to do things that uh, were criminal like raping a 13-year-old girl and burning her and killing her whole family and everything. And then if you look at things from Afghanistan, uh, the incident where a young private shows up to his unit and 10 days later kills himself or things like that, you know, because he was being hazed and all these other things, because he was of Asian descent, all of that starts or is an outcome because we haven't balanced fighter management. And leaders have been more hands-off than hands-on. And so I think the, the role of the E-9 is you've got to be seen all the time around. People have to know that you're going to show up. And if people know that you're going to show up, they know that you're there to look for, are you ready? Have you done your checks and inspections? You know, are there no rusty weapons? You know, do we have, you know, 360-degree security? All the things that we expect out of them that because of 12, 15-month deployments or 100-day deployments or whatever they are, 
that kind of stuff can erode and complacency can set in if we don't have that person that is there to enforce those kind of things. And I think as a sergeant major, that's what you got to do as an E-9. That's what you're there to do. And if you love the troops like you love your kids, then you're going to make those hard decisions and make them do what's right instead of what they want to do, which may be the wrong. So I think that's the key role in all of this. And on the flip side, too, like we've talked about, you're, you're there to be that honest conciliary. Absolutely. To tell, you know, your officer counterpart all the things that they might not want to hear. Yeah. You know, I we had had an incident when I was a brigade CSM, the worst day of my life, 19 July 2007. Our patrol was hit by an ex- explosive form penetrator. It killed one of our PSD guys, Corporal Brandon Craig, who the Craig family and my family are still close and friends, and it severely wounded our fire support officer, and multiple others were wounded as well. And my commander at the time, who I love dearly and is a great friend of mine, he put the blame on, tried to put the blame on himself for this. And he was, my cavalier actions got this young man killed and everything. And I had to bring him into his office and say, sir, the enemy got us. The enemy gets a vote. They got us today, okay? We did all our pre-combat checks. We did all our inspections. We did the IPB necessary. We were firing terrain denial fires to deny the enemy terrain where they could potentially attack us and everything. We were doing all the right thing. We just missed an EFP. Okay, and you can't take this as, you know, that we were, we were, we're all screwed up, you know. So at that point in time, I, I wasn't going to be there to tell my commander that, hey, you know, you're right, we are screwed up. I was going to tell him, hey, look, the enemy gets a vote here. It is a tragedy. We've lost a soldier and we've had some severely wounded and, and, and others minor wounded. But we're going to get our asses back in those strikers tomorrow. And we're going to get our ass back out. And we're going to continue to take the fight to the enemy because the enemy hopes that an attack like that will break us. And so as the sergeant major and the conciliar and the confidant to my boss, I had to go in there and have this hard conversation with him and tell him, you know, you're going to get your ass back in there. You're going to go back out and you're going to continue to command because it hit him pretty hard. And God bless him. He's a great friend of mine. I love him and everything. And we got beyond that and we continued to take the fight to the enemy and everything. But that was one of those conversations that we had to have, is that you can't take this person. Don't get me wrong. Every time we lose someone, we all take it personally. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned being a conciliar. If we're using mafia kind of references, we have to understand in combat that it's business and not personal a lot of times mm-hmm. with the enemy. Yeah. They are not going out there saying, I'm looking for Chuck Ritter and John Trox to kill. They're looking for a soft target or a target that they can hit that will have an impact. And... And we have to look at it that way. So that's what I think the role of a sergeant major as an e, of an E9 is. And it's not, I don't know whether you were baiting me or not, Chuck, but we've had these conversations. But it is not to try and gain influence on the troops by virtue signaling mm-hmm. or by genuflecting or sending hollow messages. And I see it all over social media right now. A sergeant major puts pictures with their troops and everything and someone says hey it's great to see you out there with your troops and they respond by saying well i'm just trying to be a leader of change well change what asshole you know excuse my language but what problem are you trying to solve change is something that we all as leaders in the military deal with and as non-commissioned officers things like on-the-spot corrections pre-combat checks pre-combat inspections 
you know, reaction to contact, all of that is associated with changing what we're doing. So why do I need to tell the troops that I'm a leader for change when it's an inherent task of what I'm expected to do every freaking day, you know? I think it's that hollow message that is basically saying to the troops, I know your life is screwed up. I know our military is screwed up and uh, I can fix it for you, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think that kind of hollow messaging is reflective of a leadership style that's based on babying people more so than getting people to be lethal, ready, fit, and prepared to face the conditions on the worst day of their life. Chuck and I have had the chance or the opportunity on the privilege to talk to a good amount of leaders in in industry, in this private or civilian sector. You know, typically it's associated that there's one leader out there as far as the decision maker for the organization or or different echelons with the organization. But what is unique about our military is that we have command teams, Mm -hmm. that that officer has a senior enlisted advisor, senior enlisted leader. And as that E9, you know, senior enlisted leader, you are also a leader. Absolutely. That's it. And so you have your own leadership philosophy as well. Talk to us about the art of leadership and how that ties to our warrior class. Yeah. So I think the art of leadership is based off of two things. The ability, you know, and then there's several sub things in there. The ability to instill discipline. And I, I, will, I will go as farther than that. Not just discipline, but self-discipline. Not just obedience to, to doing what's right, but taking ownership to do what's right. The self-discipline. But it's a balance between this discipline and then the compassion needed as a leader. That's the art of it. And, and discipline includes a lot of things, you know, to inspire, to, you know, provide purpose, motivation, direction, to, you know, do sometimes things that you don't like to do and tell people that they're not the best at what they're, they're, they're doing right now and that, and that they're hurting the team and things like that. So I think there's a, as a leader, you have to perfect that art because when you look at compassion and discipline, when you have leaders that are extremely over-compassionate and under-disciplined, you're creating an environment that is pretty permissive. And this is where the genuflecting, the you know virtue signaling, and the, the TikTok videos and stuff come in where leaders are trying to make troops feel good about themselves because I'm acting like a jackass or I'm acting like a court jester or something like that. Or that I am saying something to you that will make you feel good about yourself, all right? And that permissive environment will, can lead to the things that, like the corrosives, sexual assault, sexual harassment, racism, extremism, suicide, drugs in the barracks, you know, unauthorized people living in the barracks, things like that. Because overcompassion and underdisciplined leaders think that doing in-ranks inspections, walking through the barracks, and doing pre-combat checks, pre-combat inspections are an infringement on the personal space of troops. When in reality, it's an act of love and concern that you're looking out for the welfare and the well-being of the troops by going and checking on them. What better way to get to know your people than to see where they hang their hands? Absolutely. You know, on the other side of that, leaders that are overly disciplined and under-compassionate are probably toxic, and they probably create an environment that is based off of uh, threats and somebody shows up late, well, you do that again, I'm an Article 15, you, you know, or something like that. Or they yell a lot and there's not a lot of conversation. And pretty soon you have an environment where the troops 
won't come to the leaders for advice. People aren't excited about coming to work, and they just want to go about their job. So I think the balance in that is that's where the art comes in. And along with that, it's a leader that understands that you want to be humble in who you are, and you want to continue to motivate troops and everything, but you don't want to take that humbleness so far that all of a sudden is perceived as self-loathing. I'm sorry I hate myself that I'm a command sergeant major, okay, and, and, and I've been in for 30 years, and you're only a specialist with two years in. You know, you're exactly right. You should be the command sergeant major, and I should be the specialist kind of shit, even though I've been doing this for 30 years and you've only been in two. That kind of attitude that comes with the virtue signaling and everything. But you can't be the other way that you are so confident as a leader that it overflows into arrogance, and all of a sudden now you're leading through fear, and and everything so that's where this balance comes in and that's why it's an art too many people want to make this into a science where if this is happening here and it's happening at this time let's go to the chart and see what it says and this is the action we should take this is where it intersects yep. yeah yeah here, here's the action it I makes zero sense yeah. a leader formula. will know what where to assert themselves a leader will know when they have to instill the appropriate discipline in terms of adverse action and things. And then they'll know that we've been pushing it hard and we may need to take a break. And we may need to, you know, hey, let's just have a fun day, you know, little PT session, we'll go to breakfast, and then let's have some round table discussions, some oak tree kind of talks and everything, and let, let's get after these kinds of things. But it, it, it can't, it has to be genuine, it has to be raw, and it has to be authentic because the troops will see through it from a mile away if it's this virtue signaling or genuflecting, and they will exploit it. So what I was going to say is, you know, I, <laughs> I'm on social media a lot, and I'm in some of these forums, and I don't comment a lot because you comment on something that people don't like, then all of a sudden you've got an argument going back and forth on a keyboard and everything, hate, and that hate, never hate. solves anything. Hate, hate, hate. Yeah. <laughs> so I just look, and I saw this one senior enlisted guy post in a forum, and he said, hey, to my fellow senior enlisted, Go to the chow hall this weekend and visit your troops. But don't take your commander and don't take the PAO and leave the, the on-spot corrections for another day. You know, just go there and hang out with the troops. And I thought to myself, this is how soldiers get confused. Because a leader is going to come in there in an environment that is military, and it's a dining facility, and he's like, I'm not going to make any on-the-spot corrections. But yet the very next day on a Monday... I will make on-the-spot corrections. So the troops are like, well, okay, you didn't correct me here, but now you're correcting me here. Okay, what what does right look like here and everything, you know? And so... Just got to be balanced with it. You can't do one thing. You got to balance, day. yeah. It, I mean, when when you walk in somewhere as an E9, people ought to look and say, here he comes, you know? Not that, I mean, that their reaction is, oh, shit, I'm scared of this guy or anything. But they know that if I'm screwed up, this guy is going to come and tell me I'm screwed up. And nobody wants to be that guy where all of a sudden you're singled out, you know, and maybe pulled off to the side or something and told, get your stuff together and everything. But if you make a pass on that because you want to create an environment where everybody's relaxed and everything, you just change the standard. And when you change a standard like that to something that is less, it's hard as hell to get it back and retain your credibility as a leader. So those, those are the kinds of things that really... When I look at that, I'm like, what direction are we going here as sergeants majors in terms of doing what we're expected to do and practice the art of leadership and balances discipline and compassion, you know? So that's, that's Troxel's take.
Yeah. And I've definitely screwed all those up before. So <laughs> as an E9. Well, I have too. Yeah. Don't be, don't right. get me wrong. So I'm going to end this off on we're the Special Warfare Center in school. And you sit up at the highest level. You get to sit in with multiple presidents, mm-hmm. multiple chiefs of staff. What is the view at the strategic level or the thoughts on not just Army special operations, but special operations and the usage usage of just in general, like right, wrong, or indifferent? Like what are the views that you've seen up there? The negative that I saw was anecdotal, and it was based off a specific incident. The good was, I mean, for four years, it was everything basically was good about the use of special operations forces, the missions of special operations forces, where the anecdotal stuff was like, you know, Niger, you know, mm-hmm. or stuff like that, where people were like, what what were those guys doing and everything? And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, what I hate about at that level is that, you know, being at the strategic level is that when something bad happens, we immediately look at the tactical level to hold a leader accountable when we don't kind of backtrack and as much and say, is this a policy issue? Was our campaign plan flawed? Or was something going on that created this environment? Or did we not give the proper resources down at that level? Or did we have the proper plan with the requisite amount of troops that was able to keep fighter management at the forefront and everything? Overall, Special Operations Forces is always going to have is going to be seen in a positive light. One, because you got the U.S. SOCOM commander involved in everything. And a lot of times the JSOC commander's involved, you know. And from an Army perspective, the use of SOC commander's involved in everything. And I will just tell you, in four years as the SEAC, I spent more time, well, I won't say that. I spent a lot of time with our Special Operations Forces, either at Fort Bragg, at Damneck, Tampa, San Diego, San Antonio, wherever it was at, but more importantly, in places like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, uh, Colombia, places like that. And by and large, uh, it's overwhelmingly positive in the use. But I think what we got to do after 20 years in Afghanistan and what are we now, 19 years in Iraq, and we look at what's happening in Eastern Europe where a major war is going on for the first time in 70-some years mm-hmm. since World War II, we got to get soft back into doing the things that kind of shape, you know, shaping operations. That like going, going back in time, like when we were talking to General Tobo, and it's called Back yeah. to the Future, right? we got to get, get back to our roots. Absolutely. And I think things like strategic reconnaissance, along with targeted direct action, and then obviously foreign internal defense, I think all of that stuff has to be in play. But I think when we talk about intimidating the enemy and and deterrence, mm-hmm. I think the ability of soft to, to conduct shaping operations that will support that or in the end may cause an, an aversion, you know, from an enemy to even want to do something. I think that's going to be important as we move forward. So I think Special Operations Forces has a bright future ahead of it mm-hmm. in terms of defending our country, our homeland, and way of life. But I think we're going to see the full gamut, the, the all-domain kind of stuff, mm-hmm. the shaping stuff that comes with uh, a campaign, as well as the counterinsurgency stuff uh, and the foreign internal defense and all of that stuff. So I think you're going to see it across the board because I think we all know large-scale combat operations may start off large-scale, but if Ukraine's showing us anything, it is a small unit fight now. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and when it comes to that, especially with a an indigenous force that needs help, well, that's where you guys are going to come in, mm-hmm. and you're going to take the wood to the enemy's ass 
through this indigenous force. I haven't heard of that one before. That's good. I like that. <laughs> no, special operations, I mean, you just echoed it. We pride ourselves on our relationships, our partner relationships, and our genuine ability to work with, by, and through those partners. Yeah. And, you know, from your lens, you know, the, the importance of relationships across armies and our international partners, I mean, you, you've hit that home. What's, what's your two cents on that, if you don't mind? I think as, as the senior enlisted guy in the Department of Defense, and I, I watched my boss in action, General Joe Dunford and Secretary Jim Mattis, as well as the other secretaries of defense, and Chairman Milley as well, their relationships with these chiefs of defense. And I wanted to build a global network of senior enlisted leaders that could share best practices in terms of developing non-commissioned officers, but also assist each other in times of need. And unlike some of these relationships at the, in the officer level that are kind of transactional, you know, that's based off of, you know, mutual defense treaties or being part of NATO or being supporting the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, whatever it is. In the, in the enlisted ranks, the senior enlisted ranks, our relationships will be more transformational. I'll give you the example of the Ukrainian Sea Act. I first met the guy at a NATO conference, and we just started talking, and we hit it off, and this was in Germany. And that night, we had a social. The NATO senior enlisted leader, good friend of mine, Croatian guy, one of the best I've ever been around, Devor Patek, he uh, hosted a get-together. And all these nations had to bring their favorite alcohol there. Okay. And uh, I've never seen one of these before. Yeah. <laughs> you won't see this with the chiefs of defense or anything. Yeah. But when you get all these sea acts together, this is the kind of thing that you get. Sounds way more fun. Yeah. yeah you know, uh, and it was. But the Ukrainian sea act and I proceeded to drink two bottles of Ukrainian vodka together that night and had a good old time and got to know each other and kind of, you know, WhatsApp with both of our families and everything. And we just hit it off. And he said, hey, I want you to come visit my country. And there's a lot of that that goes back and forth. I want you to come visit and everything. But the follow through is what's important. Sure. So I made a commitment that I was going to come visit him. And I went to Ukraine and visited. And we just continued to have this brotherhood and then my last international senior listed conference was the week that I retired. And he came to that conference, and he was in my retirement ceremony. Wow. And so I think relationships, especially with our international partners, have to be transformational. Because in the end, especially with NATO, if there's an, uh, an Article 5 uh, invoke, then we're all fighting together. And in order to continue to get after the interoperability and in uh, and, and the synergy needed as a combined and, and multinational force, we've got to get these relationships where it's built on being this brotherhood and sisterhood more than it is what can you do for me and what can I do for you. And so that's what I think the power of being the SEAC was for me is that I could go to these countries all over to include places like Taiwan and places where general officers couldn't go because of the one China policy and I could link in not only with my battle buddy, the Taiwan SEAC, but meet with their chief of defense on behalf of General Dunford and Secretary Mattis. So those relationships are absolutely crucial. And when we do things like, you know, we abruptly exit Afghanistan, that 20-year Shona by Shona shoulder-to-shoulder relationships that we've had with our Afghan partners and everything, all of a sudden it gets fissured, and in some cases fractured, and it hurts, you know, and, and you, you, both of you gentlemen have spent plenty of time in these places and, and you've had these relationships and everything. And when you leave, it hurts because it's like you're leaving a family member. And that's what I think 
you can't be tone deaf to the relationships with our international partners. And sometimes there's leaders that, oh, well, I'll just meet with a guy and everything, but, you know, that's it. The other guys, the Romanian SEAC, the Polish SEAC, you know, the, all of these guys I still talk to. The Romanian SEAC, I went to visit him. I went to Hungary and visited the Hungarian SEAC. The Romanian SEAC came to the Sergeant Majors Academy in El Paso to attend the course. I went down there and spoke to the class and spent some time with him and everything. And I think when you're the senior enlisted guy in the DOD, that has to be at the top of your list of what you do is build these international relationships. And even though I've been retired for two years, I talk to these guys all the time. And the Ukrainian SEAC gives me updates every day on what's going on. And I post those on all social media because I want to tell his story. Because there may be a day real soon, and it's not just him. i got three other friends over there that are fighting. There may be a come a day that they can't tell their story because they've given their lives for their country. So I'm going to continue to tell their story, and I'm going to continue to communicate with them because this is not just some guy that I worked with when I was the SEAC. He is my brother, even though I'm an American and he's Ukrainian. Continue to tell your warrior brother's story. Very powerful message. Absolutely. And uh, very powerful remarks. I agree. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Well, I appreciate it. This, yeah, this, awesome. I love doing And thanks stuff. for the past two days, too. This is <clears throat> yeah, it's been good, you know. We talked about going out for a run in the woods two days. So, you know, obviously I cut my teeth here at Fort Bragg as a paratrooper in the 82nd, and I'm a just cause and a Desert Storm veteran from the 82nd. Getting out and running in the woods, one, was nostalgic for me because North Carolina, the woods never changes in North mm-hmm. Carolina, you know. I didn't see any red cockaded woodpecker signs no. out there, though. Oh, well, they're out good. there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're still out there. But here you have a retired guy that spent 38 years in uniform and a guy that is a sergeant major in special operations that's three times wounded, over 20 years in uniform. And we're just having this professional dialogue while we're getting after the foundation that makes our military great or any military great, our physical fitness. Those are moments that I, I just cherish, you know, when I can do stuff like that, you know. Yeah. And we, so, didn't, we didn't hit any spider webs at face level, too. That was, I know. That was well, awesome. um, thank God it was a little chilly because yeah. I, I wasn't looking forward to any spider webs. <laughs> but you guys did have your headlamps on. We and had I, our And you guys on. were wearing your reflective belts no. and socks above the ankles? No. I refuse to be a member of the E-Tool Nation right now, you know. <laughs> E-Tool <laughs> so, Nation. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. Not the E-Tool Nation. The PT Belt Nation. <laughs> I am the E-Tool Nation, and uh, I'm going to continue to promote that. But the PT Belt Nation, I am not about that. So awesome. thanks to both of you, and thanks for what you do for our country and for what you do to uh, make special operations better every day. Command Sergeant Major John Wayne Troxel, again, thanks so much for your time today. It's a pleasure having you here on Pineland Underground. Chuck and I really enjoyed the conversation, but also just the, uh, the insight you've been able to part on the students here and then the instructors that we have here at SWIC. Thanks so much, and looking forward to this podcast.